0: Are carbon offsets a delusion, a flawed tool, or something else? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. A carbon offset is a credit, a way to offset a unit of pollution created in one place by, say, planting a tree, or otherwise sequestering carbon somewhere else.
1: I just need to Recruit everybody to make sure the forests remain forests and the farmlands have as many trees as
0: possible. Pauline Kolunda is executive director of EcoTrust, a non-governmental conservation organization in Uganda. She uses money from carbon offsets purchased in wealthy countries to help build environmental resilience at the community level. Buying offsets can help fund carbon reduction projects in developing economies with limited funding, but they don't help reduce dirty air pollution back home.
2: We ultimately need to get a point where it is really, really expensive to pollute so that people pollute a lot less.
0: Khalil Baker is executive director of Taking Root, a Canada-based group which also works with the offset market to promote economic development among smallholder farmers in Nicaragua. Voluntary offsets are great for eco-conscious consumers who want to ease their climate guilt. But do they run the risk of letting individuals think they're off the hook for their carbon sins?
3: I'm a lot less worried about offsets from individuals than I am about Chevron offsetting.
0: Zoe Sina Sklar is a climate justice campaigner with Amazon Watch, an advocacy group. She worries about corporations and other large polluters using offsets to avoid accountability under state climate policies.
4: I mean, I'm astounded at the decades that elected officials have known about the climate crisis and have done nothing.
0: Penny Opal-Plant is co-founder of Idle No More Bay Area, a grassroots climate organization led by Native American women. She's critical of California's offset and cap and trade programs, which we'll explore further later in the hour with a state official. First Penny and the others joined me for a roundtable discussion of international and domestic carbon offsets. I began our conversation by asking Pauline Kalunda how individuals buying offsets in developed countries actually affects people in emerging economies.
1: The way people in the developing countries approach the carbon offset is actually from the adaptation perspective. Because we live at the front line, we are affected by climate change, so we look at it from the perspective of of building our resilience so you from the developed country it comes as you're offsetting a footprint from the developing country it comes as i'm building my resilience
0: and is there an element of justice in that because the developing countries didn't really create this problem the rich countries did most of the carbon up in the air is red white and blue which means it's american french russian etc is there an element of justice embedded in a carbon offset
1: Yes, it has an element of justice because normally to pollute, you, are, you have the ability to withstand it, to withstand the impacts of, of pollution. Whereas we stand in the perspective of we our contribution is so small, mm-hmm. but then we suffer the consequences. So we are not a very litigious community. So we don't normally look at things from the perspective of punishing and and justice, but we look at it from the perspective of cooperation and and, and partnership.
0: And so if someone buys uh, an offset that comes to Ecotrust, what what happens? What do you do with that? Is it planting trees? You said building resilience. What does that mean?
1: Yes, we work with uh, communities that are dependent on rain-fed agriculture, uh, mainly these are communities that depend on forests for fuel, wood, water, for all their basic needs. So what we do is that we develop a community vision in which we would like to build the resilience of the landscapes, both the productive and the natural landscapes. And we highlight areas where the planting of trees will have significant environmental benefits, uh, reducing uh Water flow, uh, siltation and so on and so forth. So when you come um, as an organization, as experts, we quantify the carbon stocks that will result from that land use plan. So when you come to EcoTrust, you're buying just the carbon stocks, but the package has so many other things in it.
0: Khalil Baker what happens in, with taking a uh, root in Nicaragua something similar in terms of you know uh, enhancing forests with money that wouldn't otherwise be there and helping those communities
2: yes yeah, so as like Pauline was saying it starts from helping a community achieve some of the some of the ambitions that were in place and bringing a financing mechanism that allows them to make some long-term investments within resilience into agroforestry systems and land use activities they're going to help um, both reduce carbon in the atmosphere by the same time allow the community to make long-term investments that they otherwise couldn't have made.
0: Right. Penny Apple Plant, uh, you have a different view on carbon offsets, which are a key part of California's cap-and-trade system, which is one of the key part of California's climate action. You live near some refineries. Tell us your view on carbon offsets used by big energy suppliers.
4: Well, I just want to start out by saying to um, Pauline and Khalil that that does sound like a wonderful um, mechanism for your communities and I'm right up against the belly of the refineries and the, the, along the San Francisco Bay there's five refineries and the rates of respiratory issues asthma, cancers is dramatically increased from anywhere else in the county and as an indigenous woman I also have a little bit of a different perspective because women that I love and I'm close to are at the extraction sites in the tar sands and the Bakken oil fields in North Dakota and in Ecuador and Peru and, you know, like all over. And so I'm very familiar with what the fossil fuel industry has done to indigenous people and others around the world. And here we are at the end of the world as we know it, because the world as we know it's not going to be the same for my grandchildren and my, you know, all of our, the babies that we love. And so how do we look at shifting the system, the entire system, so that your communities can get the resources that they need to do the good work that you're doing, but where we're not allowing the fossil fuel industry to continue to harm all of us?
0: And so a key part of that uh, California cap and trade program allows offsets where uh, the rationale is that let them go with their their the lowest cost. And that allows uh, companies to pollute in California, the United States, and offset that in the developing world where those companies say it's it's cheaper. That's good for customers because it it keeps the energy prices low in California elsewhere. Um, And so what. Penny, you seem to be saying that that allows pollution in your neighborhood, and people get to sort of those companies the state is allowing them to clean up another part of the world, which may be good for that part of the world, but it's, are they pitting certain people against each other? Absolutely.
4: It's a, it's the latest form of colonization. And we're seeing that in places where these contracts, maybe not in your community, but definitely up in the Yurok tribe um, in Northern California, where the decision makers to sign the contract there with the state of California did not conduct free and prior informed consent with all the tribal members. And when we went up there to talk to the women, we were invited to go up and talk to the women about the indigenous women of the Americas Defending Mother Earth Treaty. We talked to them about what signing that contract does to our indigenous sisters. And they were appalled because they were sold that contract. And it's, I believe it's a hundred year contract. They were sold that contract by people signing the contract, telling them that they are climate heroes from signing that contract, where we all know that the fossil fuel industry needs to be reined in. I mean, that has to happen. Otherwise, we're not gonna make it. I mean, scientists are talking about extinction. And so I, I don't think just about my communities. I really do think what what part of that sacred system of life is being destroyed because of humans impact on this system? Like, wh- How do we look at the system that created these problems from a more elevated perspective and say what caused these problems? Well, the system of economics that we have now caused these problems.
0: Pauline Colinda, can you see carbon offsets as a new form of colonialism where the developed countries are kind of using money to exert some control? You know, they're now mainstream and there's lots of even large environmental organizations that are, yeah. that are supporting them. So people see opportunity, powerful interests can come in. And, exactly. And, and, because
1: and when them. these things were being designed, when these because the offset market has been around, the voluntary market has been around for a very long time before the IPCC came about, before the Kyoto Protocol came about in what they call the voluntary market. People were offsetting. Companies were offsetting, organizations were offsetting. And they used to have what is called the mitigation hierarchy, whereby you start with the planning where the, the they are you agree on the critical issues that cannot be offset because they cannot be tampered with, and you start with avoidance and then followed by restoration, and whatever cannot be avoided and cannot be restored is what you offset. And they, there are some terminologies like like, for like, but then when it comes to whoever you're referred to as a colonialist, comes in to take advantage, then they take only the end that meets their objective, that fits into their, their narrative, so to speak.
0: Khalil Baker, do you use personal carbon offsets when you fly around? Do you buy offsets to say your, your plane ride here from Nicaragua?
2: Yeah, I mean, I do, but maybe I can take a step back for a second and, and focus on why we created this system, right? Ultimately, we have to bring carbon out of the air because um, carbon isn't inherently immoral or bad. We all exhale carbon dioxide, and so the because it's not inherently immoral, we can't say it is illegal to emit CO2 because we exhale, right? <laughs> if we can't say it is illegal, then we also we ultimately have to discourage people from from polluting so much and the idea is we got to put a price on it right we have to internalize that externality so the price of pollution is factored in when people make decisions so the first part is putting a cost on pollution and so a carbon offset is hey we're acknowledging there's a price ideally this would be done at the global level and the price would be really 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 high that really polluting activities like fossil fuels isn't something that could be done and so we want to discourage that behavior as a first step Right? And once that is done, well, then what do we do with that money? We could invest it in education and a whole bunch of other social goods, but we could also invest it in activities that help fund the removal of carbon from the air. So I really see it from, from that perspective.
0: So if people want to buy a carbon offset, um, how should they think about them and, and be helpful? Because it's a very confusing world to try to
2: buy offsets. The way I think about it is if you are going to buy organic food or free-range eggs, how do you know that the food that you're buying is really organic or that those chickens really w- were a free range? And so ultimately, it's going to come down to trust, right? And so you can develop trust in many different ways. Um, ideally, you, you know, know your farmer or know, your, know the activity that you're helping to support, the carbon offsetting activity that you're supporting. Um, and if you don't have that opportunity, then we rely on things like standards or the reputation of the people doing it, the people behind the project. So in the carbon industry, like in the organic industry, there's certified organic, there's there's different carbon certifications, um, and like all certifications, they're imperfect, right? So uh, an exotic timber plantation of an invasive species where people are displaced might be a really effective pump at sequestering carbon. You might be able to get that certified saying, look, we are really effective at removing carbon, but that misses the point.
0: I'd like to ask Zoe Sina-Sklar, carbon offsets, I don't think you use them when you go home to Oregon, you take the train. You know, Should people avoid carbon offsets or should they be try to be smart when they buy them? What's your view on them?
3: So often when we talk about climate change, we make it about the individual. We make mm-hmm. it about the choices of whether each of us is going to drive a car or fly or buy organic. And there certainly is a broad problem with consumption in the world. And if you look at, The drivers of climate change, if you look at the people, and there are people with names and addresses who are allowing this crisis to continue, it's fossil fuel CEOs, it's huge cattle trading commodity traders in the Brazilian Amazon going deep into the rainforest, and those actors really need to be held accountable, and so often... The way offsets work is it's a transferring of costs. And so it's meaning that people still can't breathe clean air. It's meaning that we're having climate disasters where people are losing their homes and losing their livelihoods. And it's meaning that indigenous communities who've been the best stewards of the land for millennia are sometimes getting displaced. And I totally trust that the my fellow panelists here have really... Good programs that are working to, to avoid those tensions. Um, but there is a history of indigenous peoples um, being told, sign this contract, receive money, and they're already protecting their lands. Um, indigenous peoples are less than 5% of the world's population, but they are stewards for 80% of the world's biodiversity. They're incredible protectors and in their cosmovisions, it's not necessarily about money. Um, and I do think there's a need to be, I know there's a need to be transferring resources from the Global North, from those of us who are responsible to the Global South. And I think that that needs to be happening in a more systemic way, not about you or me buying an offset, and certainly not about a big oil company that's making it hard for people to breathe in Richmond, California, buying an offset in the Amazon.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about carbon offsets. Later, we'll hear more about California's offsets from an official of the state's air board. First, more from our roundtable about the challenges of paying for the privilege to pollute. What
1: do I need to do to incentivize these people to leave the forest as a forest? To make the integration of trees on farm a profitable venture. That's up next when Climate One continues.
0: This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton and we're talking about the carbon offsets market with Pauline Kulinda, executive director of EcoTrust in Uganda. Khalil Baker is executive director of Taking Root in Nicaragua. Penny Opal Plant, co-founder of Idle No More Bay Area. And Zoe Sina Sklar, a climate justice campaigner with Amazon Watch. We pick up our roundtable conversation with a larger question to Zoe about markets. Are they part of the solution or part of the problem when it comes to the climate crisis?
3: I think they are a big part of the problem. When we look at how we've dealt with climate change thus far, I would say dealt in big air quotation marks. We've seen a lot of markets and a lot of incremental change at best. We're still seeing rising greenhouse gas emissions and we're seeing a rise of climate catastrophe every year. And people are looking to the market and grasping for these market solutions in that moment. And I would say that that's we've tried that and it has not been working. Um, And we have this really, really short window to take real action. And often when you see policies that could step up to the crisis, like the Green New Deal, people say, but it's going to cost too much. We can't afford it. And I would say that the cost of an action or delaying action is so much greater. And when we have billionaires who have those resources and people who don't, have enough to meet their basic needs. There's a need for that money to move. And if we don't see that movement and redistribution of money, I don't think we will be able to face the enormity of this crisis.
0: And there's some billionaires coming forward, Ray Dalio and others saying tax us more, right? Uh, some of them, not all of them, but some people are, are coming forward saying, yeah, I should be. Uh, uh, Khalil Baker, you know, you, your organization feeds into carbon markets. Markets are fast. They're powerful. Um, can they be part of the solution?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just uh, hesitant when we use big terms like like that. Like markets, to me, ultimately means we're trading between people, and people have done that for since beginning of well, when there's been people. But within every exchange, markets are ruled by are made by rules, mm-hmm. and society makes those rules. And so we can direct. We're not going to get rid of exchange between people, right? That's just as fundamental as. As since humans have been creating civilization. So we need people, we need politics, we need price signals, we need democracies to shape markets to get them to where we want them to go. Changing yeah. the rules of markets, perhaps. And
0: there's a lot of that absolutely, work going absolutely. on there to sort of change the rules of markets. There's some really wonky so things going about on. about
2: taxation and billionaires being taxed more, we're talking about redistribution, right? And the importance of, of distribution and inequality creates so many problems. It doesn't inherently mean that we shouldn't be financing activities that remove carbon from the atmosphere, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, put a price on pollution so that we can get to these aims. Penny, Opal Plant.
4: I I just, you know, that's the second time you've brought that up, Khalil, about how the markets reduce, the carbon market reduces um, carbon. But, I mean, Pauline brought up that this has been happening for decades, as we know, and the carbon has increased so I, can you talk about that a little bit more like I'm curious what how, how does that how do you reconcile those two facts
2: yeah I mean I didn't explicitly say that this is fixing the problem the problem has been fixed we ultimately need to get a point where it is really really expensive to pollute so that people pollute a lot less um, and there is evidence of where I live now in British Columbia where they have put in a, a tax on carbon and academics have studied this and they think that it has reduced the amount of emissions that would have happened otherwise. Emissions have still gone up, which is a horrible thing, Um, and so I think that price needs to be a lot higher. But what, if it's not for pricing the emission of carbon dioxide, what other mechanism do we think is going to be really, really effective at doing that?
1: I, I also am a bit, should I say, confused, because I'm thinking that there is no silver bullet there are things that are completely unacceptable. Whether or not there is an, an opportunity to offset, there are things that are just completely unacceptable. Just like we have the judicial system, whereby if if you murder someone, I mean, you would be thrown into the cooler or something like that. So you can't say that because there is a way to punish evil doers, then then evil is on the rise. There's there's got to be everything. But also, the offsetting system that we work in, for example, is purely voluntary, where people sit down and determine their footprint and try all means to be able to, to reduce the footprint. But whatever else they cannot do without, they offset. So you can't say that simply because Other people are taking that as an opportunity to whitewash themselves. Therefore, the opportunity for others to have zero impact should also be taken away. So I'm thinking that there is a place for a market, but it is not the silver bullet. There are very many other things that need to be done uh, in, in combination with with the market.
0: Sure. I think a lot of people would acknowledge that they're imperfect. There needs to be a price on carbon. There needs to be lots of other things, reductions, et cetera. I'm wondering, uh, Zoe, if offsets create a moral hazard, sort of the illusion that, oh, okay, I I can throw some money. And, you know, because I interview a lot of climate evangelists who dedicate their lives to climate and they fly all over the place. And that's their number one carbon sin. And they acknowledge it and they somehow justify it as well I'm doing more good my net balance is positive but they're on airplanes all over the place which we all know is a, the most dangerous you know harmful thing we can do it harms the environment at a vulnerable elevation so is this ultimately have to come down to a moral issue
3: I think there's a lot of pieces of the climate crisis that are a deeply moral issue and I go back to what I said said at the opening about the role of the individual versus the role of the system so I'm a lot less worried about offsets from individuals than I am about Chevron offsetting. So to give a piece of how it's connected to my work, um, a lot of oil from the Amazon, about half of all the oil exports from the Amazon are refined here in California. And that's making it hard for people, for Penny's neighbors to breathe and is causing climate crisis. And In one of the provinces where there's a lot of oil drilling in Ecuador and Pastaza, the governor wants to join California's offset program. So we're looking at a situation where Chevron could be paying the governor of Pastaza to keep polluting communities here in California, while at the same time continuing oil drilling in his province. So we're seeing that being a true moral hazard where there's these big corporate polluters getting let off the hook. And so I think this piece of the individual and the voluntary market is one piece. And this piece of offsets is part of climate policies of states like California is another. And at the broader level with these offsets, there's also just huge issues around efficacy and, and leakage. So the drivers of climate change are fossil fuel extraction and deforestation. And those drivers are continuing and expanding, and unless we're looking at those drivers, we're gonna see that offsets aren't even decreasing emissions at a global level. Um, There's a really interesting forthcoming study from um, a UC Berkeley researcher, Barbara Haya, um, looking at offsets in the California context, and she found that 82% of these offsets, which are domestic offsets, not international, that 82% of those offsets are not actually having an impact because of leakage. So one timber company is cutting down fewer trees and another timber company is turning around and cutting down more trees. So I think we have to be looking at those drivers and again, looking at the broader system and who's buying these offsets. The International Aviation Association is really excited about offsets and the climate impact of that sector is a lot bigger than even the most frequent flyer among us
0: you're just joining us at Climate One, we're talking about carbon offsets with Zoe Sina Sklar, climate justice campaigner with Amazon Watch, Penny Opal Plant, co-founder of Idle No More Bay Area, Khalil Baker is executive director of Taking Root in Nicaragua, and Pauline Kalunda is executive director of Ecotrust in Uganda. It's easy to say, and I interview lots of people who other people should change. Republicans should do this, China should do that, companies should do that, this state, you know, it's always, and you know, a lot of the great moral leaders of social movements have said change begins with the individual and then emanates outward and and then it's easy to blame a company, uh, you know a chevron or a shell but we smoke their crack now <laughs> most people don't have choices so we are complicit and that's where it gets really and this is a sincere i'm very conflicted and looking to penny for how you sort that out
4: it's hand in hand the the solutions have to come from all, every sector. Hmm. Now, from an individual, I recently made the decision I wasn't going to fly anymore. So my family is going to Hawaii without
0: me this summer. You're the moral um, leader I've been looking for. Well,
4: yeah. you know, I think and that, that's an individual choice. I have no judgment on anyone else's, you know, how they're living their life. But for me, I realized that The way that I think and the way that I feel has to be in alignment. And for me, that alignment included not flying anymore. But I think that, you know, when we look at how do as individuals, how do we do this? Well, it includes, like, how do we make Amtrak better? How are we going to move people around this continent in a way that isn't creating more carbon like how what do we do as individuals but also how do we shift the entire system so that these polluting corporations whose shareholders not all of them support them you know there are shareholders that, that are not in alignment with what these corporations are doing. And so how do we shift this whole system? Again, it's such a critical time, and we might not make it. So how do we work together to figure this out, to move forward in the best way? It's now. There's, a future generation is not going to be able to make those decisions. It's on us
0: and you made that decision about not flying, not because of the impact, because a lot of people would say, Penny, not flying, you're not going to accomplish anything, but it's because so you can live with yourself.
4: Absolutely. And we all
1: have to do that.
0: Pauline, should, should, should I feel guilty for my lifestyle?
1: <laughs> um, I don't know your lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> what I know is that where I come from, it feels like we. I just need to... Recruit everybody to make sure the forests remain forests and the farmlands have as many trees as possible. So whereas where you're coming from, um, the kind of decision that you kind of take is, is from the consumer's perspective. Where I come from, it's from the producer's perspective. So yes, there are many pieces to this, But yes, where I come from is what do I need to do to incentivize these people to leave the forest as a forest? What do I need to do to incentivize these people to make the integration of trees on farm a profitable venture? And if selling a service, because while they go about increasing trees on their land, they provide these services, the carbon sequestration service, the climate service. So if commoditizing that service adds on that income stream that makes an agroforestry system a profitable venture that makes it, it to break even then that's what i do that's that's the contribution i make
0: so as we wrap up here i want to get to bridging the individual and the systemic because we know individual action isn't enough and yet we have a hard time acting at a systemic level if, we, if we're not in a in a position of of power so how can, you know, Penny, let's, you know, how can an individual affect a system? Because systems are big and they don't have simple buttons we can just push.
4: And they haven't been successful at keeping us safe. You know, I mean, I'm astounded at the decades that elected officials have known about the climate crisis and have done nothing, including the United Nations. So, you know, I just. It hurts. It's painful. And because we know that they're locked into a system that isn't working, I encourage and invite every human being in the entire world to rise up with others who are rising up because I think it's going to take about a billion of us rising up together at the same time around the world continuously on, on specific days for the to force policymakers to do the to make the difficult decisions that need to be made right now. You know, if there are millions of us in the streets stopping commerce, stopping travel, stopping the wealthiest people's rivers of income, then things will change.
5: We keep our
0: listening to a conversation about carbon offsets. This is Climate One. Coming up, we'll hear different perspectives on the offset credit program in California, which is a growing part of the state's efforts to reduce carbon emissions.
6: We learned from the mistakes in the international programs and decided that we didn't want to replicate many of those features into our own program. We're allowing
5: businesses in California like Chevron and Phillips and other large emitters to continue to emit because they're buying these credits many of which don't actually represent real emissions reductions.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One, I'm Greg Dalton. Barbara Haya is a research fellow at the University of California, Berkeley Center for Environmental Public Policy. She studies California's carbon offset program and is critical of its results.
5: It's not performing as advertised. It's generating many fewer reductions than credits it generates.
0: Rajinder Sahota, who leads the cap and trade program for the California Air Resources Board, disagrees.
6: We don't have a deduction line for offsets. They are a compliance currency under the cap and trade program.
0: We'll hear more from Reginder in just a bit. First, Barbara Haya explains what her research has shown about the role
5: of offsets in California's carbon reduction plans. The majority of our reductions are coming from direct regulatory measures. So far, the cap-and-trade program has had very little effect. Our cap-and-trade program is expected to include something like 40 percent of our reductions
0: In the future. In the future. Direct regulation now, you're talking about mandates on companies. So 100% renewable energy, saying you got to be cleaner. Those sorts of direct mandates are the thrust of California's program right now. Cap and trade, which has gotten a lot of the attention of California's program, isn't doing much now, but it will be up to 40% in the future.
5: Right. And going forward, um, offsets can be used to meet half of those reductions. So the quality of our offset program really strongly affects the quality and the effectiveness of our cap-and-trade program.
0: And what grade would you give California's offsets?
5: So California structured its offset program to remedy the impacts of the UN's offset program. It has not fully done that. So a report that I came out two months ago looked at um, the forest offset protocol, which is generating 80% of California's offset credits, a huge number of credits. And I found that four and five of those credits don't represent real emissions reductions because of lenient methods. Used to estimate emissions reductions from these and from these projects.
0: A, what, and, and let's just explain forest offset credits. This is where uh, a landowner who owns some forest land can say keep the trees standing and get paid for doing something or not doing something that would release carbon into the atmosphere. Basically, get paid for managing their forest in a different way that has carbon benefits.
5: Yes. So what that means is that forest landowners who are already managing their lands in a sustainable way, are now allowed to earn offset credits for their current management practice. And we don't know how much the forest protocol is really influencing landowner management decisions and how much we are just paying for business-as-usual land management.
0: This whole question of additionality, are people changing their behavior because of these offset payments? It's really hard to measure, right?
5: It's really hard to measure. But there's a second problem with our forest offset protocol. And this is the study that I released two months ago. And that's this issue of leakage. That is, if you conserve forests by reducing the amount of timber you harvest... But you don't change the demand for timber products, that timber production is just going to come from somewhere else. So you mm-hmm. preserve forest carbon in one place and then you, you just deplete push it, it somewhere else. Yeah. You, you just deplete it somewhere else. Um, the protocol includes very weak methods for accounting for this leakage. I
0: think people talk about squeezing a balloon, right? The air just goes <laughs> somewhere else. So overall, the headline here is that California's offset program and the cap and trade program is not
5: performing as advertised. It's not performing as advertised. It's generating many fewer reductions than credits it generates. And it's important to remember that for every credit generated, an emitter in California is allowed to emit more because they've purchased this credit. So we're trading, we're allowing businesses in California like Chevron and Phillips and other large emitters to continue to emit because they're buying these credits that many of which don't actually represent real emissions reductions.
0: Would you say that California is overstating its climate leadership?
5: I would say that California is doing a tremendous amount to rein in our greenhouse gas emissions through our regulatory measures. California's cap and trade program is not working. We've structured it to keep prices too low to really drive emissions reductions, and offsets is one piece of that. What worries me so much about California's cap-and-trade program is that we're designing it as a model for other jurisdictions. Oregon is considering a cap-and-trade and offset program much like ours. Linking with Canada. Yeah. What really worries me is that we're exporting a policy that reduces more emissions on paper, many more emissions on paper than it does in practice. So one thing our offset program is doing is keeping prices low without actually reducing emissions.
0: Which, for an elected politician and for consumers, keeping the price of compliance low is a good thing. No one wants the price of gasoline or electric bills to go up to fight climate. So keeping the cost low is an agreed goal, right, for anyone who's an elected office responsible to citizens who don't want to pay more at the pump or the meter.
5: But when we keep prices low, it doesn't drive change. And... There's one thing to set a cap and not meet it. There's another thing to set a cap, not meet it, but to say you did. And that's really dangerous.
0: Do you think California's cap-and-trade program should be fixed or ditched?
5: I think it is possible to have an offset program that makes sense. And what we would need to do is to have a much smaller offset program recognizing the challenges, the uncertainty in what we're actually achieving and the risk that we're not achieving what we say we are. Um, We can have a program that has much tighter rules um, that more conservatively estimates the emissions reduced and more carefully chooses the project types that are allowed to participate. I think most important is understanding what offsets are and what offsets are not. What offsets are is a way for... Emitters to pay into a program that reduces some hard to measure amount of emissions reductions in lieu of reducing their own emissions. So, if we acknowledge that, it creates an opening for us to ask well, what is worth that trade? What types of flexibility do we want to provide to businesses that? Um, will weaken or could weaken the effectiveness of our global warming law, but might be worthwhile to create that flexibility on the edge. Yeah.
0: I think a lot of people that's, are well-intentioned even across this, whether it's on the personal level or or the systems level, people want to believe they're doing good and aren't doing as much good as they think they are.
5: I mean, here's one, I think really fruitful use for offsets. So in the voluntary market, For example, um, University of California has a carbon neutrality initiative where UC is committed to being carbon neutral by 2025. Offsets allowed UC to take this very, very aggressive climate target um, and try to meet it, even though it's near impossible for us to actually meet with all on-site reductions. So offsets created the ability for us to take this very deep target, try to meet it, and then procure these offsets as we continue to reduce our emissions over time towards real zero. So
0: offsets can fuel climate ambition, even if they're not 100% foolproof today.
5: Very well put. And I think that there's also a very, there's a difference between uh, California taking a climate target and Oregon taking a climate target that's in line with what those jurisdictions should be doing to reduce their own emissions. And a carbon neutrality initiative goal, which is very ambitious and voluntary. So I think offsets can really play a role in allowing for these targets to be taken and then providing that flexibility to meet them.
0: Barbara Haya, a research fellow at the University of California, Berkeley, Center for Environmental Public Policy on California's carbon offset program. You're listening to Climate One. Rajinder Sahota heads up the cap-and-trade program for the California Air Resources Board. I asked her to respond to critics like Barbara Haya, who claim that the offset program is not working as advertised.
6: So the original offsets were part of the international community under the Kyoto Protocol, and they were under the Clean Development Mechanism. And yes, there were issues that played out in the 90s and early 2000s, In California, we didn't actually start to design our cap-and-trade program until 2009. And by that time, enough stories had come out about the international offsets to where we realized that we wanted a different model, which actually is more robust, has um, a more objective way to quantify and identify offsets, and includes a rigorous third-party verification component now, that hasn't stopped people from trying to equate some of the bad stories that came out with the international offsets with ours. But the design of our program is very, very different and it's much more robust than what was in the international community. Um, in fact, our program has actually been litigated because it was signaled by some um, environmental groups early on that our offsets were just as flawed as the international offsets. But in the litigation and the lawsuit, ARB, the state of California, was able to demonstrate that our program was sufficiently different, sufficiently robust, that we met the requirements of AB 32, the statute that calls for the climate programs and sets the climate targets, and that um, implementing the program in the way that we had designed the program would meet the objectives of having real quantifiable, verifiable, and permanent offsets in our system.
0: A lot of the California offsets are focused on forests. As I understand it, to be eligible for an offset, a f- forest owner has to have a forest that, av- that sequesters more than the average amount of carbon. So, by definition, you know half of the forests average uh, hold more than the average amount of carbon. So that raises the question whether people, forest owners, can get paid for doing nothing or doing what they're already doing. Are there safeguards to ensure that people, forest owners, can't just get paid for doing nothing?
6: No, and um, if if I'm understanding your question correctly, you may be picking up on some of the speaking points where um, a research fellow at Berkeley has actually uh, taken aim at our offset program and especially the forest program. And right. um, we what we do is we look at the growth in a forest that is owned by an individual, we try to understand if that growth is more than what should be available in that forest under existing regulations and under um, existing natural growth patterns. So it's not an average, it's better than what is there in the absence of an offset program. And we only credit above that amount. And each year that forest grows and each year you get an incremental more amount of credits in the system. I think the, the concern that she is raising is, is that she doesn't believe that any growth that exists on day one in a forest should be creditable. But people have been taking action um, to do better than what is required by regulation and what would be the natural growth cycle in the region, and they should be rewarded for that. And AB 32 explicitly calls for us to reward early action and doing better than Laws and regulations and business as usual is defined as being additional and has been litigated in the lawsuit.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's Barbara Haya, who we spoke to earlier in this uh, uh, podcast and radio show. California, good headlines this week. California ahead of its goals to reduce carbon emissions by 2020 to the levels of of, uh, 1990. So California's ahead of its uh, overall ambition to reduce carbon emissions. Is it true that in the next decade that cap-and-trade and and carbon offsets will play a bigger role than they have so far? Because a lot of the gains so far have been because of uh, clean electricity from renewable sources. California moving ahead very strongly there. Will offsets and... uh, for us be more important in the next decade than they were in the last decade?
6: So when we adopted the 2017 scoping plan, what we're looking at is a reduction of about 40% from 2020 to 2030. The rate of decline doubles in terms of how many reductions we have to get the next decade compared to this decade. So it is a much steeper decline to that target. Um, the cap and trade program is one of the policies that we identified, along with the renewable electricity standards, the low carbon fuel standard, advanced clean cars, and several other standards here at the, at the state of California to help achieve that 2030 target. The cap and trade program is um, required to deliver about 35% of the reductions necessary over the next decade. The, the program itself includes offsets. But that offsets are not in any way counted towards our target in 2030. And I can explain that a little bit more. When we put out the inventory that you saw this week, what you saw was the actual emissions from the tailpipes, the actual emissions from the smokestacks in the state of California, and the emissions associated with imported power that was consumed in California. We don't have a deduction line for offsets. There is no, the offsets don't play a role a specific line item in reducing emissions towards our target. They are a compliance currency under the cap and trade program. And so I've always been a little confused or a little frustrated that, again, I know Ms. Hayer is one of the people that believes this or or states this, is that offsets will somehow um, count towards our inventory and tracking progress towards the AB32 and SB32 targets. That's factually incorrect, um, anyone can look at the inventory on our page and see that we never count offsets as any kind of deduction. We always count the actual emissions into the atmosphere that are, that are occurring in California and associated with imported power.
0: Okay. One of the critiques of, of cap and trade, which is associated with offsets, is that the price is too low to drive change. What do you say to critics of cap and trade who say the price is too low?
6: I think what you see is when you have an economy-wide program like cap and trade, we already know that companies are factoring into their long-term investments for um, updating their facilities and making business decisions to count for the price of carbon. And so it's never been clear to me what evidence has been put forth out there that the prices are too low to actually get people that are regulated to consider carbon on their books when they're thinking about long-term financial um, assets and liabilities on their books because that's not what we're hearing and that's not what we're seeing. So I would disagree that the prices are too low. I would also note that um, the prices reflect that we have complementary policy. So we have the low carbon fuel standard, we have renewable portfolio standard, we have other measures that are picking up some of that that cost in them and and all of the burden is not falling to cap and trade.
0: So for example, that uh, you know, I've interviewed several oil companies who they say they have a shadow price of seventy to eighty dollars, much higher than California's, and you would say that's okay because California has other tools. That price is just one of the tools
6: driving emissions. That's not, correct. That, I mean when they say okay. they have a shadow price of seventy, eighty dollars, the question is Was that shadow price what they think their carbon liability is because of cap-and-trade, or does it also include the low-carbon fuel standard, which requires that if they are not meeting the benchmark in that in any given year, they're paying upwards of $200 in another program at ARB to reduce their carbon intensity.
0: A defense of California's carbon offsets program from Reginda Sahota, who heads up the cap-and-trade program for the California Air Resources Board. Derek Brokoff is a senior scientist with the Stockholm Environmental Institute, a nonprofit research and policy organization. He offers us a final thought on why buying offsets isn't, and perhaps shouldn't be, as simple as buying a toothbrush.:
7: Number one: carbon offsets are not a simple commodity, and so anyone approaching them uh, or contemplating offset purchases uh, should do so with their, their eyes wide open. It's not uh, the same kind of thing as going to purchase a toothbrush. Um, I'd say you have to do, do your homework. Number two, I would say there's been a bit of a, a, a paradigm shift in the last few years. Um, you know, the, the advice for voluntary offsetters has always been uh, reduce your own emissions first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would go even further to say, you know, carbon offset should always only be the icing on the cake, not the cake itself. And uh, the, you know the, the attitude used to be okay. I can get carbon offsets for five or ten dollars a ton, so I'm going to reduce my own emissions uh, up to where you know the cost for me is maybe five or ten dollars per ton, and then I'll just offset the rest. And I think we've reached a point where that kind of approach, although it sounds cost-effective uh, in the short run, is not workable in the long run. Uh, You look at kind of the big picture and where we need to be in terms of global emissions in 10, 20, 30 years, uh, we as a society, all sectors of the economy need to start making really significant uh, investments in reducing emissions. And uh, the the, the costs uh, of doing so is going to be well above what carbon offsets are going for right now. Um, So, General recommendation is reduce as much as you can feasibly do uh, and then turn to offsets as a kind of additional, even charitable contribution that you can make towards both helping the climate uh, and making the world a better place. Derek
0: Brokhoff, senior scientist with the Stockholm Environmental Institute, helping us thread the needle on the upsides and downsides of carbon offsets. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Please help us to get people talking more about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And when you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, join us for a live event, tickets at climateone.org. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.